Hello everyone, this is Rafael Otto and welcome to another episode of the Early Link Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Ron Herndon, director of the Portland-based Albina Head Start since 1975. His background includes more than four decades of activism and leadership advocating on behalf of low-income families and children and Portland's black community. He served as chairman of the board for the National Head Start Association for 20 years, from 1993 to 2013. Today, he continues to expand the reach and scope of his Head Start and Early Head Start programs that serve more than 1,000 children in 33 classrooms at 25 locations in North, Northeast, and Southeast Portland. That includes the addition of a Mandarin language curriculum, the first of its kind for a Head Start program in the U.S. Ron, welcome. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. If you could start by telling me about the history of Albina Head Start, uh, an organization that you've led since 1975 but was formed originally uh, in 1965. Uh, Albina Head, Head Start was part of a community action program in Portland called Portland Metropolitan Steering Committee. It was one of the many different programs that it was responsible for. And what was different and indicated a great deal of foresight on the part of those who started the program. From its inception, it was a full-day program, 7 in the morning to 5.30 in the afternoon, for parents who were working and training or uh, in school. Most Head Start programs at that time and still today are half-day programs. So the people who put this program together were ahead of their time in recognizing the need for full daycare for uh, low-income parents. I was fortunate enough to be hired in 75 by Head Start parents. They were the ones who recruited me. They were the ones who asked other parents to support me in that position. The (laughs) grantee at that time, Portland Metropolitan Steering Committee, had some reservations about hiring me because of my reputation uh, for whatever reason. It uh, appeared as if uh, some people thought that what I was involved in the community was radical. But Head Start parents were aware that I had helped start an independent school in the black community and that ultimately went from kindergarten through the fifth grade and also was very much involved in helping to create a black bookstore. Both of these institutions were located in in Albina. So because of that history, they thought that I might be able to to fit well with Head Start. So that's how I got to Head Start. That That's how Albina Head Start uh, was created. Can you describe the significance of the name Albina as it relates to black history in Portland? Albina originally was a, a city, a town that became a part of uh, Portland. I think in the early, late uh, 1800s. It ultimately became the area in which the majority of black people lived in Portland. Certainly after the Van Port flood, I think, occurred in in 46, many, many black families were forced into Albina. Interestingly enough, as far back as the early 40s, uh, the Realtors Code in Portland, this is one of the first evidence evidences of redlining in Portland. The Realtors Code in Portland said that if a realtor sold a piece of property to black people outside of a very defined area, they would lose their license. Portland had many racist practices during that period of time. Uh, Before 1940, there were probably only 4,000 people, black people in Portland. Because Portland became a shipbuilding center during World War II, black people were recruited to work in a shipyard. And they were given the worst jobs. They could not join the white union. They set up a separate union for for black people in which they paid dues, but they had no voice. They could not vote. Black women, when they went to down, into downtown Portland, they, couldn't, they were not allowed to try on dresses. They couldn't try on hats. There were many stores and uh, hotels, white only. Uh, black musicians would come to town to play Duke Ellington and others, and they would perform at these hotels, but they could not stay and mingle with the guests, and they certainly could not uh, live in the hotel. There was one hotel that black people could live in, and that had been set up, and it was owned by black people 
for black men primarily who worked on the railroad here in, in, in Oregon. So there were a lot of racist practices that were present in Portland when Albina became the center for uh, black people. A lot of black businesses were set up in Albina. It became a, a thriving community in spite of the racist practices. Unfortunately, uh, over a period of about 20, 30 years, Portland began to make decisions uh, that severely disrupted the black community. Uh, first was the creation of Memorial Coliseum that destroyed hundreds of homes and businesses that had been owned by black people. Then came I, the extension of I-5, though there were alternate routes the folks in charge chose to run it right through the black community. Again, hundreds of, of families disrupted, homes lost. All of this, in terms of background, can probably be traced back to national policies that developed in the 1930s, 33, during the Roosevelt administration, when homes, housing, there was a housing shortage in this country, and the Federal Home Administration was created to create subsidized housing for primarily white families with uh, these loans for mortgages that were being backed up by the federal government. Uh, contractors were given subsidies by the federal government. And it said very specifically, and they came up that these housing subsidies would not be made, made available to black families. And they came up with color-coded maps all across this country of every metropolitan area and the areas in red were where black people lived so that assessors, insurance companies, bankers would not have to guess where they could or could not make loans. That's where the word redlining comes from. It was a national policy, and because of that, white communities developed, the suburbs began to develop, housing tracts developed, all because of subsidized loans backed up by the federal government. And black people were paying taxes too, but those financial instruments were never made available to them. Many will argue that the white middle class in America was developed because of these policies. People were able to purchase homes. Those homes stayed in families. The assessed values grew over decades. People were able to use those homes as collateral to send their kids to school, start businesses. Black families were not allowed that privilege. And many still argue that the wealth gap that exists in this country has its origins in home ownership being made and subsidized, uh, made available to white families. Those, uh, again, that privilege was, was never given to black, pa black families, though they were taxpayers also. They paid for privileges that white people were able to exercise that were denied to black people. Same thing happened here in Portland. After the freeway, then Emanuel Hospital was given a great deal of land to expand. That land was occupied by black families. Again, hundreds of black families lost those homes. And what we're talking about is the diminished wealth in the black community. And you have to wonder if black people were able to maintain that property, the billions of dollars of wealth that they would have and those families would have accumula accumulated over those decades. And that wealth was, was lost. What you see now, once the disinvestment began, you have properties that were redlined, and that's the city of Portland has even acknowledged redlining did occur. Uh, black families uh, were not able to avail themselves of the kind of financial instruments that were available to white families. Businesses were not able to avail themselves of the kind of financing from banks and insurance companies that were available to white citizens. So you had a depreciation of value of homes and properties in Albina. White people who had access to all of those financial instruments were able to pick up those houses for next to nothing. And now you have what people call the gentrification on, you look at Mississippi Avenue and Portland, Williams Avenue and all the the booming development that has taken place, um, and I've said to on many occasions, that gentrification is one thing where you're able to go and pick up a house 
fix it up, and, and perhaps over a course of time, a neighborhood appreciates in value. But it's quite another when you use illegal means, unethical means, unlawful means like redlining, and you prevent certain people from access to capital. You encourage other people to, to take advantage of that access to capital. And at the end of the day, one population has, has had little, if any, opportunity to accumulate wealth. Another one does, and that's what's happened in, in Portland, and, and there are organizations, individuals who are trying to right that wrong now to make homeowning in Albina again possible for uh, for black families. But that's a, a little bit of the history of Albina. I know that OPB released a documentary, Lift Every Voice, in 2015. Some of those issues and voices were raised in that film, but what we're talking about is the way in which the system has been constructed that it uh, benefits one community, not the other. And I think that is a way to identify how the system works. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's, that is one of the clearest examples of, of institutional racism that you'll ever find in, in any city. That's, that's it. What are some of the other lasting effects of those kinds of decisions and actions that were made by, you've talked about federal decisions, but also city policies and decisions that were made that violated the trust of the Albina community. What are some of the other ongoing lasting impacts of those policies and decisions? Well, the black community has been scattered. It, it has been scattered uh, because once those financial instruments were made available to, to the well-connected in the white community and they were able to come in and buy this property, property values went up and black people who had been renting in that neighborhood, no longer could afford it. And same thing happened to the uh, to white people. Some of the white people who had lived in Albina, they were forced out, but it had its most negative impact upon the black community. So thousands of black people were forced out of uh, Albina and into other parts of Portland. And what happened in in many respects is you, the cultural home of the black community. Uh, black people were forced out of Albina, and if you ever wonder, well, do people really still have an attachment to black people do they, that have been moved out? Do they still have an attachment to Albina? There's a park in the middle of, the, of Albina called Dawson Park. And you can come back, you can drive by there on any day, and you will see large numbers of black people who still come back from outside of Albina to meet friends, uh, to socialize at that park. There are still resources that black people come back to take advantage of that are owned by black people in Albina. So there is this sense, this is our cultural home. This is our historic home. So there are a lot of people who do want to come come back. But to answer your question, the, uh, much of the community was moved out. People were moved out of there. And uh, again, the illegal means, immoral means, unethical means were used to destroy the ability of black people to live where they want. And what's interesting, during the same period of time that black people were being displaced from Albina, the Portland school district in the late 60s, early 70s began to do the same thing with the children. They began to get rid of the upper grades. Primarily Portland's school system was K through 8. New superintendent comes in, he says, oh, I'm going to get rid of K through 8. We're going to create K through 5 and middle schools, and every child will have a neighborhood middle school. They began to bus black kids out of Albina. They got rid of the upper grades, the 6th, 7th, and 8th grades. So you got a school that still has a lot, of, a lot of space. And not only did they bus kids out, they scattered them. One particular school, kids who were graduating from the 5th grade were sent to over 30 different white schools all around Portland. And the school district acknowledged that they did not want to have many black kids in any school that they were bused to. And it was a very lonely and sometimes hostile experience for black kids who were bused out to these schools. Simultaneously, Portland Public Schools said that black teachers could not teach in predominantly black schools. White teachers could teach wherever they want. But if black teachers taught in schools, that were, these K through five remaining black schools, if they taught in those schools, that would 
be segregation. Now, white teachers teaching schools are predominantly white. That wasn't segregation, right? But the black teachers doing that, that was segregation. So here you go. You got this space in these black schools because the sixth, seventh, and eighth grades have been removed. They set up accelerated early childhood centers in these schools, brought in a lot of uh, equipment, modern practices, and those were set up for white kids who primarily were bussed in from the west side, bussed into these predominantly black schools to go to preschool. Black kids who lived across the street from these preschool from these schools could not get into those accelerated preschools. They couldn't get into them, right? These were just for white kids. And what I failed to mention was that when black kids were bussed out who who were in fifth, sixth, seventh grade, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, their parents had to sign a piece of paper and said that once they graduated from eighth grade, they would not come back to go to high schools in the in or near the black community, like Jefferson or, or, or Grant. Roosevelt, they would not come back to those high schools. They had to sign a piece of paper. It's almost like the past system in, in South Africa. But white parents who chose to send their kids to those accelerated middle, uh, accelerated preschools in black community, they never had to sign anything that said they're going to keep their kids in those schools. They go. Most of them took their kids back home to their neighbor their neighborhood primary schools. There was no assigned middle school for children in the black community. So that's how the system worked in Portland. You have integration. You have black kids in one school. You have white kids in one school. So you have body mingling, and Portland called that integration. I want to get clear on the timeline, because this is, we're going back to the... Late 60s, early 70s. Late 60s, early 70s. Yes. And then into the 80s, you were involved with organizing the Black United Front Yes. to end Yes. The school busing policies. Yes. yes. It, you you described this. You just talked about it, but you described it as a, a, a forced body mingling. It was. There was never one white child in Portland who was forced to be bussed out of the neighborhood for the purposes of integration. Not one. And for those who believed, I didn't, but those who believed that there was a superior educational advantage for black kids if they went to white schools because those white schools were performing better than black schools based upon tests. Well, the school in Portland at that time, primary school that had the lowest test scores was a school that was predominantly white, bald, in North Portland. They had test scores that were lower than any of the schools in the black community, but never did anyone suggest that those white students that had ball be bused to other white schools that had superior academic records. So if indeed you thought busing was a legitimate academic remedy, why didn't you use it for a school that was predominantly white and had a very poor academic record? It was only reserved for black children, only forced on the black community. And I've often said that there are only two populations in this country that were removed from their community purportedly for educational purposes. The Indian community, in which very similar things happened all the way up until I think the 50s, maybe 60s, that Indian children were taken away from their communities and sent to boarding schools miles away, punished if they spoke their language. And I think as one person said who was involved when this was created, we want to take the Indian out of the child. It was one of the worst offenses of the American public educational system that this country has witnessed. Same thing happened in Portland of taking black kids out of their community, just black kids, nobody else out of their community, and sending them into some schools in which they met with hostile reception, all purportedly to uh, improve their educational possibilities. You were instrumental in changing those policies through the work of the Black United Front. Can you tell me about what it took to do that? There were several of us who had been involved in, in efforts to improve conditions in the black community, and we got together and said, look, whatever we try to do, we have not made the kind of, of, of change or changes that, that are required to impact positively large numbers of black people. So let's put, our, let's put the, our organizational efforts together, and perhaps we'll have a little bit more success. And we met quietly for a period of time, seven, eight months, and decided to name the organization of Black United Front because of the efforts of a similarly named organization back east. I happen to know some of the folks in leadership position and uh, thought that what they had done had been fairly successful in the New York area. So we borrowed from some of their efforts, getting people together from different organizations. 
And a woman that, that doesn't give enough credit here in Portland, she was a teacher assistant at boys' school at the time. Her name was Viesa Loving. And she said the first area we need to address is education because she had been involved in that in previous efforts to do something about this. We agreed. We spent another four or five months very quietly talking to all the affected neighborhood associations, all the ministers, other organizations, civic uh, social organizations in the black communities said, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to change, we're going to change this system of forced busing and we're going to make it possible for black teachers and principals and black teachers to teach at schools and black community if they want to. And we're going to push for hiring black principals. There was, I think, only one black principal in Portland at the time. There had only been one in the history of Portland public schools. And there needs to be an effort made to develop a curriculum that addresses black history and culture. We need to do something about these the high rate of expulsion and exp- and suspensions for black children. So those were the, the major areas. And we needed to create an assigned middle school for children in, in the black community since there was none. We held a, a press conference, and we did two things at press conference. Uh, two of the most prominent ministers of black community were there. I think uh, Miss Loving was there myself. We announced that there is this new organization called the Black United Front. Its first objective is to get rid of this forced busing program, and we're going to begin to have meetings in the black community, and we will boycott Portland Public Schools beginning in September if our demands are not met. I think at the first meeting we held, there were approximately 100 people, and we met every Thursday for the the remainder of that summer, and each week, it seemed as if the number of people attending the meetings doubled. Uh, By the end of, near the end of August, we had over a thousand people, uh, black people, who were attending those those meetings. Negotiations began with Portland School Board, and it was interesting to me to hear the members that I interacted with say very clearly that they wanted to maintain a busing program but they wanted to limit the scattering. They said, we're not interested in that busing program remaining. Black kids deserve the exact same privilege their parents, the white kids have. A neighborhood school they can attend if they want. No more will they be forced to get on anybody's bus to go out of their community unless that's what their parents want. They deserve to have that option. And I listened in these meetings and be one or two board members and which they would point out you know you don't want to we don't want to bust you to this school and it's predominantly white school because it's not a very good school and i thought to myself you're saying to me that this is not a very good school it's a predominantly white school but i haven't heard you talk about what you're going to do to improve the offering for those kids there and you know that's not a very good school normally the schools they pointed out to me that weren't very good schools were schools where primarily low-income white kids went to school. So you know what the academic offering looks like for low-income white kids, but you're not doing anything about it that I'm aware of, nor are you, are you able to tell me. As a matter of fact, you think the offering is so poor that you don't want any longer for that to be an option for black kids to be busted. to. So anyway, we went through all that stuff, and finally the, the board agreed to get rid of the busing program. They agreed to allow black teachers to teach at schools in the black community if they wanted to. They agreed to begin hiring black principals and other administrative staff. And a number of, of the other demands that we had, including the creation of a middle school for kids in the black community, they agreed to. And I've always felt the reason they did that was because of the support that these ideas had in the black community. It was very clear. This was not just Ron Herndon and two or three other people. When you have every major minister, every major organization that signed up to be supportive and you see them at these meetings, so the school board began to send people from the administration to those meetings so they could see for themselves what was happening. We had nothing to hide. We're not hiding anything from it. They could see the kind of support that the uh, this effort had. And it, uh, we were, we were successful. And it, still today, it's probably one, one of the highest privileges that I've ever had is to be a part of that effort. And that's all. I was just a part of that effort. It was truly a community effort. Do you see similarities at all today between those busing policies of the 70s and some of the modern voucher policies that are in place uh, in different cities around the country? Well, 
I think in, in this respect, yes, because at least the research I've seen, vouchers have not proven to be the silver bullet for increasing educational opportunities for black children that many said that they would be. It's the same with charter schools. There is not a great deal of evidence that charter schools have raised academic performance for black children who attend them nationwide. Uh, so I see this as another attempt purportedly to address educational uh, problems that impact black children and other children of color now that's not based upon any any research or or science that says this is a proven method for improving education. It has put money in the hands of people who, at least from what I've seen, have never shown a great deal of interest or success in educating low-income black kids or black kids or other low-income children in this country. I think that there are some things that could be done that have not been done to help children who don't learn. And by the way, probably the largest group of children who are receiving poor education in this country, numerically, are poor white kids. I've often said, who or what represents poor white kids in this educational discussion? They seem to be left behind for the most part. What organization has as its mission to increase the academic performance for schools that serve primarily poor white kids? I, I I have not seen that in, in America, and because of that, I think that's one of the reasons that you see certain individuals without naming names who end up being successful politicians because they're able to appeal to, to white people and say, you've been left behind. In many cases, they are absolutely right. Their solutions for this problem are questionable at best, but what they've identified, I think, is quite accurate. Related to the vouchers, so you do think there are some things that could be done, there are some solutions that could be done differently. What would those be? Well, I think for public education in general, because if you improve uh, public education dramatically, parents would not be concerned about vouchers and they wouldn't have any traction. Same thing with charter schools. One, you need to go upstream. and By that I mean it's a disgrace the way we train public school teachers in this country. We train them quite carelessly. And if you train pilots the way you train public school teachers in this country, you never get on a commercial flight. Never, ever. Pilots are trained by the best pilots. Public school teachers are trained by theoreticians and academicians, for the most part, have never had a kid reading at grade level and in many cases have never taught in public schools. And that's a disgrace. Public school teachers should be taught by your best practitioners, always your best practitioners. Teachers who are excellent reading teachers should teach reading in schools of education. Teachers who are excellent math teachers should be the only one who teach math to folks who want to become teachers. We don't do that here. What we do, we have academicians who have titles, uh, PhD and a master's degree, but have never been great practitioners. Teaching those who are going to go into a very difficult profession, and it is unfair, and once they enter the profession, because of tenure, primarily, those new teachers who've been ill-prepared end up being placed in schools that are your worst-performing schools. I mean, primarily, that's what happens. So after, if they stay in the profession and if they're fortunate enough to, to learn from a good teacher along the way, perhaps they can improve their craft, but it's at the expense of kids. If we, in fact, said in schools of education for a person who wants to become a teacher, 80% of your time has to be spent with a successful practitioner. I think we could do a great deal to give folks who want to go into the classroom the kind of skills that they need that, that would allow them to be successful. Train them the same way that, that, that you train a doctor or, or you, you train a dentist or you train a pilot or you train a plumber or you train like If we train teachers the way we train electricians, you would never touch that microphone because you'd risk being shot. <laughs> We do it so carelessly and in in such a cavalier fashion. And principals the same way. Principals are not trained by the best principals. You just stick around, pass a few more classes, go to the same school, the miseducated teachers, go back to them, let them give you some managerial classes. They stamp you on the button. Now you're a principal, your principal material. 
a society does not treat those who care for children that carelessly if, in fact, they really cared about their children. And we've proven time and time again we really don't. If those things were done to train teachers and principals, if we use our best practitioners to train them, I think you would see a great deal of success and improvement very quickly in schools, public schools across this country. I think you would. But because we don't, we continue to have the same problems and people want shortcuts. Shortcut is give money to a charter school or give money to a voucher program and we're going to do magic. They haven't. Part of what Elbina Head Start aims to do is empower the families it serves. How do you think about the process of empowerment for the communities that you work with? First, we have to do our job in Head Start. We have to make sure that children are treated well. We have to make sure that we have high aspirations for for children and we share that with parents. We have to, to say, and we're trying to say it even more clearly now, that when your child is with us, not only are they going to be treated well, but we'll introduce them to a different language. And we want to make sure that if your child has been with us a couple of years, that when they leave us, they're well on their way to learn how to read and do math. And use plain language in saying that. What's surprising? Not surprising, but sometimes I guess I, I can laugh and sometimes I just get disgusted. That often in this field, the preschool education, we use code words. We're afraid to just say it. We talk about, well, we, we want to make sure that we introduce children to literacy. What the hell does that mean? Literacy? Why don't you say you want to teach kids to read? Because, see, I came along at a time in Head Start, and much of preschool education that said, you don't try to teach kids to read while they're in Head Start. That will do them harm. Leave that wow. to public schools. And I'd say, what public school do you know is doing a good job of teaching low-income kids to read, write, or do math? But, well, no, it's not developmentally appropriate. That was the buzzword, right? When I came into Head Start, I said, look, I just came out of being the director of a a K-5 through independent school right here in Albina. We always taught kids to read in kindergarten. As soon as they got there, we taught them how to read and started doing math. And you're telling me we can't do that in Head Start? It became so insane that when federal federal staff or those hired by federal staff came in to assess Head Start programs, this is a, you're going to think that I'm making this up. I am not. They even told Head Start directors that had the alphabet on the wall, you shouldn't have the alphabet on the wall because it's not, yeah, it's not developmentally appropriate. Some of these same people that you will see today, uh, the leaders in preschool education and some of them own companies that sell millions of dollars worth of goods, they were leading the charge. Take down that alphabet. And people would say, well, what's wrong with that? Teach them ABCs. Well, if you're going to keep the alphabet up there, change the order. Don't have ABC, M, Y, Z, so that there's no order to it. Yes, they, that's how. And, and I used to say, look here, if our parents hit the lottery and they had enough money to go to a Montessori school, Guess what Montessori schools do? With, without apology, teach kids to read, write, and do math at the earliest age. But yet, when you come to low-income kids, you say you shouldn't do that. It's not developmentally appropriate. Yes, That's this incredible. is what was said for decades, right, decades. So us, what we need to do is treat children well, make sure they're well-fed, make sure that they get their dental exams, their vision exams, hearing exams, all their medical exams, and that they get exposed to learning their colors, learning how to write their name, recognize their name, and what we're doing now. And Albina was really pioneering reading instruction for kids. Oh, they looked at me like Genghis Khan. My peers looked at me like Genghis Khan when I said that because they said you shouldn't do that in Head Start. And I'm talking about my peers as well as the people who ran Head Start nationally, they said, you should not do that. Yes. There were conferences that were held all across this country, and people made millions of dollars running around here selling product and speeches. Matter of fact, to show you how dastardly it was, at our, I think it was 1997 National Head Start Association Conference. It was in Boston. I'll never forget it. I got up when I made my speech. I said, we, when Kit... Those of us in Head Start should say without apology that while children are with us in Head Start, we're going to teach them to read. 
the blowback that I got, and just to stay out of court, from some of these national organi- national corporations that sell stuff to Head Start and other programs across, wrote me letters that took me to task for suggesting that you should teach kids to read in Head Start. One person even said, their research showed that if you tried to teach black boys to read at an early age, they were more likely to get involved in criminal activities when they got to be teenagers. Oh my. Put that in print to me, right? And that corporation still is selling their product across this country. Another, Both of them took me to task for suggesting that. And what was funny, a month or two later, I think in the Clinton administration, they said they came up with this lofty goal that all kids in Head Start should be able to recognize 10 letters before they left Head Start, right? Okay, so that means you're going to start teaching kids about the alphabet, right? The same people, the same companies who took me to task for having the nerve to suggest that you should teach kids to read Head Start, all of a sudden they added new chapters to their books. Now they have a chapter on literacy in which they say that now our materials will help you to learn, to help you to learn the techniques and buy this material to help children to become literate. Same ones that so hypocritically criticize me about literacy, right? And teaching kids to read. So having watched this over the years, it has it has been disgusting. Absolutely disgusting for me because the same standards that they had for upper income kids didn't have those for lower. And this is a head start. And these comp and while I'm on the subject. <laughs> Please. This is what still gets me at national conferences. If you go to a national conference today, and they're talking about preschool education, you tell me how many people you see on these panels as experts who look like the kids in classrooms across this country. Most of the children in Head Start are children of color, primarily black, Hispanic, and Native American, Asian. See if that is replicated on these expert panels. No, I can tell you, it's a rhetorical question. I can tell you it isn't. 50 years after the creation of Head Start, still most of the people who stand up and give lectures, give direction about what should happen in preschool education are white. And they feel no pain about that. No pain at all. So the problems, this, we're talking about teacher training, what we do at, at Albina. That's, that's one of the questions. I, I, do, I, I do want you to talk about the yeah. CTA program. Sure. Uh, the center training assistant program, but talk about the what do you see is is the reason behind that professional disconnect? The disconnect to get more uh, black adults, Native Americans, mm-hmm. into the profession, into leadership positions. It's not important. It's never been important to the people who run early education in this country. You do the things that are important. If you think it's important, you identify it as a problem, you address it. It has never been identified other than a sideways conversation, and now it's under the cloak of diversity. Uh, you hear you, you hear these conversations about, we need to do something about diversity. Well, charity starts at home. Do something about the people that you have at these tables. You're telling me after 50 years, there are not black, Hispanic, or Native American people who can get up and talk about what techniques work with their kids or kids in general, they're not there. You, that's what you're telling me. They are not there or their, vo- or their voices are not legitimate enough to address an audience. That's what you're telling me. Personally, me, I've never had an education course in my life. I've learned from a lot of smart people. I've studied from a lot of smart people. And I think I do fairly well, at least over a 20-year period, I kept being reelected as as the chair of National Head Start Association. So I think people from around the country felt that I had yes. had a fairly decent background a, in education, right? right? Learned on the job, right? So if I can do it, I'm not the only one. There are other and I could point them out to you. There are other folks in the, folks in this country who should be the ones giving direction about what works with these children, but they are left out of the conversation. Uh, one of the things I was going to mention that we're doing now, we have a system that allows us to communicate with parents, every parent in our program, either through text or, or email or voicemail. We're using that now each, I think every week or two, we tell parents, this is what your kid's supposed to be learning this week in your classroom. Mm-hmm. So the parents will know there's no mystery. This is what's going on. Setting up clear expectations yeah. for the parents. So you know, if this is not happening in your classroom, you need to come see me because this is what is supposed to be occurring 
in these areas around reading and math in particular. This is what's supposed to be. They're supposed to be learning these letters this week. This is what's supposed to be happening. So the people know. It's no mystery to this stuff. And at the end of the year, somebody's going to be surprised about what did you teach or what didn't you teach. This is what we're trying to do. And this is what you can do to help us. Say more about the CTA program and how that works as a pathway for parents. CTA stands for Center Training Assistant. We started it back in the 90s. We got it from another Head Start program. It's a way for parents who want to enter Head Start to receive on-the-job training that could lead to uh, employment in Head Start. Again, we got it from a Head Start program uh, here in Oregon. We thought it was a great idea. We implemented it, and for a few years, and we had people go through it who are still with us now that, that are in the various departments of the program. But over a couple, a few years, we didn't pay a, enough attention to it. And then what really struck, struck us, Head Start swallowed hook, line, and sinker, this notion nationally that for a teacher to be effective, they had to have a BA. I never, I never thought that was true. My argument was everybody in public schools got a BA and we are the worst public education system in the industrialized world. So what showed me the connection? And we train teachers haphazardly and, and carelessly in this country. So now you're going to ruin Head Start by doing sending them to the same institution? A resounding answer, yes. And if you don't have enough BA uh, teachers on board, that can impact your funding. That was a clear message. So dumb me responding to that. One year we went out and hired us a whole bunch of BA teachers. They were a disaster, a disaster. Uh, made negative comments about the teacher assistants. You know, I have a BA, you can't tell me anything. And these were teacher assistants from the community who would work with the children, work with the families, and had been successful. But all of a sudden you come in and you devalue not only them, but you devalue their experience. And, and when that, was this? Two oh seven, two oh eight, around then. Uh, yeah, it was national policy, so I saluted and said, "Hey, we better stay out of trouble." My mistake. Finally, it, I, I got less dumber and said, "Wait a minute, this is not working." And, so, and had a meeting with our education coordinators, all of whom had been great teachers. I said, "Look, what? How were you trained?" To the person, we came here as either a substitute or a teacher assistant. We worked several years in the classroom. We learned. Then we became teachers. We worked several years in the classroom, and you thought enough of, of our ability that we were promoted to be education coordinators. I said, well, let's try to replicate at least the method that was used and was successful with you. So we reinvigorated our CTA program. And the only people who teach parents, so we said, parents, if you Think you want to go into the classroom, 100 hours of training, all volunteer, pick up your, your health card, first aid card, and you have a working interview ultimately. And if we think and you think this is something you want to pursue, then you get hired as a substitute, openings, get hired as a teacher assistant, and we go from there. If, once you're a teacher assistant, we pay for you to go to community college and pick up your AA. Another one of those mandates without money, but so be it. And over the last, it's been very successful over the last, I think, five years, we've hired about 70 parents. And now we have over 300 people who work for buying a Head Start. 70 plus percent are either current or former Head Start parents. And people will say, well, okay, they hired, this sounds like the CETA, old CETA, this is hiring people who are low income, blah, 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 blah. But no, it's not. We've had federal reviews, and federal reviews are very in intensive. You have a team of people come in and go through your program with a fine-tooth comb from everything from nutrition, physical health, dental, classroom, you name it. And we've had those uh, over the last 10 years. We've not had one noncompliance. We've not had one deficiency, and that's the gold standard in Head Start. We've had annual uh, – you have to have an annual – Fiscal audit and Head Start, our fiscal audits have been clean. So the standards that are used to determine whether Head Start program functions well, we have met and exceeded those standards for well over a decade with the majority of our employees being current or former Head Start parents. We spend a great deal of time training, 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 training. That training is provided by people who have shown excellence in that field. 
nobody else. We believe in trainers being excellent practitioners. Other than that, you should not be up in front of people talking about how to work with kids. And you haven't been in a classroom since Gene Autry jumped off a champion. <laughs> and, and, and now you're going to tell somebody how, they, how to work with kids. It's insane. Well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is, is this question, there's a lot of conversation now about what a high-quality program or high-quality preschool program looks like. Mm -hmm. And you've talked about reaching the gold standard in terms of federal standards for your program with Head Start. Mm -hmm. That certainly seems like something that preschool programs should aspire to. But is there are there other things that you would say define a high-quality program and a high-quality teacher? Well, I think parental involvement, the ability to engage uh, – parents and, and show them that they are very much a part of the success, success of the child, not only in Head Start, but when they leave Head Start. And, and to get them to believe that. It's not just a slogan, but we need your involvement in every possible way in working with your child to, to do everything that can be done to help them reach their maximum potential and for them to believe in themselves that they can succeed in an academic environment and for you to believe that. That's one of the most important things that we can do so that you continue as this child's best advocate when they go into public schools. One of the biggest problems with, with preschools in this country is they're underfunded. Uh, Head Start has a luxury of, of probably uh, nationwide best funding for preschool education. Not only are we able to hire classroom staff, we have 20 children max in a classroom. We have three adults. Most preschools, if they're not federally funded, can't afford that. We have staff whose only job primarily is to work with parents, family advocates. We have a health team uh, on site uh, that works with staff and parents and children. We're able to access mental health services. Well, most preschools aren't able to do that. And again, as a nation, we have not shown that we really value the lives of children in a way that we ensure that they, those services should be available for all children, regardless of where they go to school, not just in Head Start. And we should spend a great deal more time in ensuring that people who work with young children have been trained by successful practitioners. We don't do that. So I think that for preschool education in this country, we have a long way to go to get to a point, and I believe this, that every child whose parent wants them to have a preschool experience should have that experience, and money should not be a determinant of whether they are able to access a good preschool. I mean, we know enough about what's necessary for a child to have a great experience to, to replicate this all across the country. Our shame is that we haven't done it. What are you seeing in terms of trends for Head Start and early Head Start? Because I want to focus on the birth to five age range. But what are you seeing uh, in terms of how those programs evolving? What, what, what does the future look like for those two programs? Well, there's a great deal of research now that shows that Head Start works. I mean, you have a Nobel laureate, uh, James Heckman, out of the University of Chicago. I think he was a Nobel laureate economics in the early 2000s. And he said, I've looked at all the research. Head Start's the best in, one of the best investments you could ever make in terms of return on a dollar. So almost every month I see additional research that talks about the success of Head Start, one that doesn't receive a lot of attention during the waning days of George W. Bush's administration. The office of Head Start came out with uh, this information. They said Head Start had been credited, was being credited, with lowering the childhood mortality rate in the entire country in, in America. And you think about less than what probably for eligible children and we and Head Start uses the worst the lowest determinant of for poverty in the country for years you've had parents who qualify for WIC but make too much money to get a Head Start feature mm -hmm. that right. qualify for public housing but make too much money to get a Head Start so Head Start uses the lowest determinant of poverty so even using that maybe 30% of eligible children receive Head Start. So how in the world could Head Start lower the mortality rate for children 5 through 8 in the entire country? One, Head Start parents are 
sharing the information about healthcare with their relatives and friends. Head Start parents deserve credit for that because the universe of Head Start kids is not large enough to have done that for the entire country. Sure. So Head Start parents have spread the word with their friends, with their relatives. This is why you need to keep up to date with immunizations. This is why your kid needs to make sure that they get dental follow-ups. This is why they need to have. So that's a success story for Head Start parents spreading the word about why healthcare is important. But that statistic is one that does not get shared enough about the successes of Head Start. But getting back to your question, I think Great deal of evidence that shows why Head Start and early Head Start, which works with children birth through three, has they've been successful because they've been funded and they're run by people who come from the communities these kids come from, and they receive the the kind of services around them that allow parents to to learn and to give them the help that they need. Something that that I've noticed over the years, looking at parents who come into early Head Start. Now, I think we start, our youngest age is about, honestly, uh, six months uh, to three years old. And we look at the kind of crisis intervention that parents need when their children are in that age group. And normally it's around 70, let's say 70 to 80% of our parents in that age group Parents of children in age group need some sort of crisis intervention, whether it's housing, legal services. But then you look at the age group of three through five, that figure drops down to about 20 to 30 percent. And that tells me that during that period of time, when their children were most vulnerable and they needed help, they learned how to access the system in this country, in this community, in this city, that would allow them to become more independent. They no longer needed as much, I mean, it was reduced by more than half. They no longer needed the kind of help when crisis came up. They knew how to to independently access the services that they need. And I think when you start talking about the future, unfortunately, I do not see the country the country's willingness to make the kind of investments in those kind of programs. They work. You would think that people would say, oh, hey, these programs work quite well. We're, we're going to ensure that these services are available for all of our children because these families need this. All families need this. I'm not hopeful, unfortunately. I'm just not hopeful. I don't see as much energy going into making sure that happens as went into this tax bill that just passed. Yeah. I don't see a thousand lobbyists up on the hill saying, this is what children need and, and doggone it. We're your donors and make sure you, you make it possible. I just right. don't see it happening. Right. That's not it's certainly not happening right now. And in Oregon, we're in a place certainly where we know that tens of thousands of kids, low-income kids, uh, could benefit from high-quality preschool, but the state commitment to funding programs isn't there. Well, what can the state do? The same thing. At some points, people have to make uh, a rational judgment that if we spend the money here, we'll save money in decades to come. These children who go through here are going to become taxpayers. They're going to, to be independent citizens. They are going to help this state uh, blossom, uh, move forward. They're not going to be an impediment in the state. They're going to give a, a tremendous boost to what Oregon wants to do. And that's why we were going to make sure that all children receive this kind of service. The state has not made that commitment short-sighted. And I understand this, uh, the arguments that you can always, that in, in many cases are legitimate. We only have a certain amount of money. Well, what's going to give you the, the biggest return on your investment? I have not yet seen anything that gives a bigger return on investment than high-quality preschool. So it's a short short-sighted, short-sighted. Tell me about your Mandarin language curriculum. It's, it's an innovation. It's the first of its kind for a Head Start program in the U.S., as far as we can tell. How did you get there, and, mm. and why did you launch that particular program? Well, we thought China is very important in today's world. It's going to be even more important in the lives of uh, the children and the families that we serve. Would it not make sense that there are some that some children in America be able to speak Mandarin? And once you get to that point, then why not in Head Start? And we looked around Ar Portland, Oregon. Is there somebody that could help us? Is there some institution that can help us to provide this 
this language acquisition for our Head Start, our Head Start children. And finally, a gentleman got in touch with me here who lives here in Portland. I think he may still be here. And he said, hey, my children attend school in Portland and they're learning Mandarin. Primarily, I think it's in, the up, in primary school. I said, what? I didn't know that. And he said, yeah, it's a program that uh, Portland Public Schools collaborates with through Portland State. They have something called the Confucius Institute. He made the introduction to the, the uh, Dr. Liu at Portland State, who at that time ran the Confucius Institute. Uh, he made the intro introduction. They recruit teachers from China to teach Mandarin in Portland Public Schools. We said we wanted a teacher in, in our Head Start program. She was very cooperative, and we were lucky enough to get uh, a young woman uh, from China who is a great teacher. Uh, and she's been with us now five years. She was only supposed to be with us one year and go back home, so we pleaded and begged <laughs> to, to, to see if we could keep her for two years, and uh, she wanted to stay. Uh, we were able to get her for two years, and we said, look, if we're going to have any kind of stable program, we need her to, to help us expand this program. So we helped her to obtain a green card, and it was uh, it's, it's just... Sometimes I believe this, that you never know if you're going to succeed, but you have to try. I mean, the only thing beats failure is a try. It's an old saying I've heard all my life. At the time, there were 150 applicants for green cards. Uh, no, H-1B visas, H-1B visas. And they were only going to get 50,000 out. We were able to get in touch with a great lawyer here in town, and he was able to help us through the hoops, and we got one of those 50,000. H-1B visas, and then able to get her on track to get a green card. Uh, she's the foundation of what we're doing. We need additional teachers because we can only she can only get to so many classrooms. Sure. So we're we're in the process now of trying to figure that out. And along the way, uh, Portland Public Schools, their language program, their Mandarin program, they've been very good to us, and they've allowed us to use part-time some of their uh, Mandarin teachers. One of our biggest successes was that King, the, we sent the graduation video of our first class of Mandarin uh, students to Portland Public Schools, essentially to say there's no reason why low-income kids, black and brown primarily, can't learn Mandarin. They were so impressed that King School was, was uh, converted into a Mandarin immersion program. And children who, who graduate from our Head Start program who've had Mandarin are able to uh, get in that program in kindergarten. And we are very proud of the fact that that's the first, that is the first immersion program that's ever been set up at a school that in uh, Albina. It never happened before. And we're very happy with the working relationship that we've had with the PPS language staff. I told them, I said, this is my own experience with Portland Public Schools, which people made commitments and they kept them without a boycott or a threat <laughs> of a boycott or, or a strike. <laughs> so it's been great working with them. And um, we, again, children can learn what we prepare to teach them. If we set goals uh, and have high aspirations for children and we give them the opportunity, the majority of the time they will reach them. Uh, and that Mandarin program is just another example of that. There's no reason why these children can't learn. And we were fortunate enough, one of the teachers from Portland Pub that Portland Public Schools had uh, that they shared with us, she went back to her college and shared what we were doing, and they invited us to send a delegation to the college this past uh, spring to develop a cooperative agreement between their college and our Head Start program for future exchange of teachers and we think that that might be the ticket for us to expand the Mandarin program, plus for our teachers to really have the experience of learning in, in China and teachers from their college to learn from, from our Head Start program. And you recently visited China. This past spring. Tell me about the trip and, and what you observed about differences or similarities in early education. Larger classrooms, 30 women, I think 40 children in classroom. The college, the, and again, this is anecdotal, and I never think that 
what I saw is representative of an entire country. It's what I saw. The the class preschool classrooms we went to, I think two or three, in and around Guiyang. We we visit Guiyang preschool educational college. They have a whole college dedicated to training preschool teachers. And just my observation, teachers well-trained, well-equipped. And I think that if we had people coming to visit our Head Start program, I'd make sure they went to our our best-equipped classrooms also. (laughs) Sure. But well-fed. I was really impressed with the outdoor activities, large muscle activities that they had children involved in far more accelerated in terms of difficulty than you'd find in, in the majority of American preschool programs, including ours. Children were doing things that required balance, athleticism, that you could tell. they'd been, And these were all kids. They weren't just uh, the most athletically inclined kids in the school. All kids were, were doing this, and that was impressive. And the kids... And the teachers were leading the activities. And I remember looking out of our hotel room uh, one morning and I saw it appeared to be middle school students. The same thing. They were doing group exercises uh, during the morning. And I don't see that in American schools. And being led by what appeared to be uh, teaching staff. So in addition to what you would expect in terms of learning about the alphabet, colors, shapes, the the physical, the importance of, of physical activity in, in, in some systematic way really stood out, really stood out for me. It wasn't haphazard, like it, it basically recess, let the kids run around sure. and have large muscle. You know. This was very planned. It's part of the curriculum. It's part of the schedule. Yes, yes. And you could tell that, that uh, this wasn't done for our benefit because kids were doing it too well, and all of them were doing this. <laughs> it wasn't something that they'd put together a program just for us. Sure. So that was impressive to me. Uh, beyond the facility, beyond uh, the, the, the teachers, beyond the curriculum, that stood out. Ronnie, you are known as a community leader, uh, well-known in the Portland community and nationally, and is someone who has been effective at getting results and making change happen. What advice would you give to others interested in doing the same? Understand that this is something that if if you're talking about institutional change, then be prepared to spend years addressing that and be prepared to not always get a great deal of attention but also understanding that if you are successful, you can impact literally thousands of, if not hundreds of thousands of people and, and, and families who don't get a lot of attention in this country. And to make sure that you do your research about whatever area you want to address so that you understand it as well as the people who don't want to change and who want to maintain the status quo. Uh, that I find is missing frequently. The people certainly have righteous indignation, but have you done your research about why this system works like this? What's going to be required to make it change? And if it did change, what would it look like? And not just change the complexion of the people who run the institution. Uh, That frequently is quite inadequate. Uh, It's not about complexion. It's about making sure the institution functions well for all citizens. And that functioning should be something that everybody, regardless of income or complexion, is able to see this institution works well for me, my family, and my children. So how are you going to make that change happen? And it would help if you were able to look around the world at places where people have done this, or at least to some degree, and they have institutions that function, function well for the majority of citizens so that you're not trying to recreate the wheel that when you ask people to come out and you ask them to get involved in challenging the status quo, they and you should have a fairly good idea that we're going to be successful. And that's got to be based upon something other than I want change, that you owe it to yourself and you owe it to the people that you're asking to some degree take risk, that here's what it's going to look like when we are successful. You owe it to them so that you don't end up having another unsuccessful effort in low-income communities, which is, is very destructive. So I think the preparation is, is, is very important. And know what it will look like 
at, at the end of this fight and understand that it can take years to do this. This is not, this is not something that's going to be accomplished normally with a microwave approach and be prepared to, uh, to do that. If you were tasked with organizing for a cause today, mm-hmm. what would it be? Same one, education, housing, and uh, employment. And the Black United Front, we addressed all of those with some degree of success. Those same, those same areas uh, for at least the black community are very, very important. Uh, education is always critical. Housing, certainly home ownership, because again, that's how wealth was created for the majority of, of, of white America, and still that hasn't changed. You own a home, you're able to, to uh, acquire equity, and, and you, if, if it works well, you're able to pass it down through the family. And job training so that people are able to obtain the skills or allow them to be independent in today's world. Those would be the areas that I would focus on. Ronnie, thanks very much for your Pleasure. time. It's great speaking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. Don't forget you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on our website at childinst.org.